Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is this gospel lesson, this beautiful story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. But we will add to it these words, which is a follow-up in Luke 24. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Here ends our text. There's something about this story that I think probably is one of the most entrancing stories of the Bible because in that literary device where you know the answer and they don't, it becomes an exciting text. Here they are, two men on the road to Emmaus, just a short distance away from Jerusalem, walking and talking and discussing what it is that had just taken place and the concerns that they had, the, the despondency that they felt when they had believed that this was going to be the Redeemer of Israel. That word, Redeemer, is like somebody who has bought somebody out of prison. It's like somebody who has given his life as a ransom. It's like somebody who's obtained a pardon, that all humanity was going to be ransomed and redeemed and pardoned by this person, Jesus Christ, and yet all their hopes had ended and it was over. As those men walked down that road, and we think about how it is that Jesus came up beside them talking, he hid himself from them, he prevented them from knowing who he was, he began to question them on what they knew, and then all of a sudden he opened up their minds to understand all about himself in the scriptures. Opened up their minds, meaning that somehow that one piece, that missing piece, was there. It was the missing piece of understanding that it was necessary for him to suffer. It was necessary for him to die. It was necessary for him to rise again in order to accomplish his work of redemption. And as he was speaking to them, they said later, their hearts were burning inside of them with this incredible realization of what it was all about. And then he brought them, they brought him into the house and there in the breaking of bread, he opened up their eyes and they recognized him for who he was. And then he disappeared. We can take these stories and we can rejoice so much over what this story means in that resurrection. But one of the things that we seldom do is back up and ask ourselves the question, what was it that these men had? What faith did they have to receive this faith? How is it that they were being prepared for the reception of this message and this news? For today, I'm sure that we could go out and tell everybody in the whole world that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead and you would meet with blank faces because their hearts have not been 
rightly prepared. What is this faith that receives faith? What is this thing that is behind the reception of the gift of the gospel? If we might begin to look into the scriptures, we might get an idea of what it takes in order to prepare the heart for the reception of the gospel. If we look at what it is that Paul wrote about Timothy and to Timothy, that from infancy he had known the scriptures taught to him by his mother and his grandmother. From infancy, the word is brephos in the Greek. It means from the time that he was on his mother's breast, he was learning the scriptures from them. It is this way of life that is spoken about in Deuteronomy. They were to take the scriptures God told them, and while they were walking, they were to teach it to their children. While they were sitting down at the table, while they were at nighttime, while they were wherever they were, they were going to talk theology with their children. And they did it from infancy. We have the story of Jesus at the temple when he was 12 or 13, so-called confirmation when he was first permitted to be able to go up to Jerusalem. And his parents lose him for three days. What is he doing? Not playing out in the streets. He was not hanging out with his friends. He was not going places to see the sights. He was there in the temple in Jerusalem discussing and talking with the pastors, the priests of Israel. And they were ecstasied. They were standing outside of themselves marveling at what this child knew and understood because for all those years, every single Sabbath, every single Sabbath, he was in the synagogue listening, absorbing, hearing, maybe even discussing that with his mother and father. What kind of parents did these two men have? Perhaps if we look at the story of Mary, maybe even in contrast to Zechariah, how Mary could receive these words of the Incarnation knowing that it would be a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and he would be called God with us. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, who as steadfast as they might be, Zechariah there in the temple, unable to accept even the message that he was going to have a son. But still, two people who lived their lives inside of and for the Word of God. If we look at Simeon, perhaps we have an idea of the kind of parents that these men may have had. A Simeon who was there in the temple and he was anxiously looking for the consolation of Israel and wanted to see it before he died. He wanted to be able to see that Christ child and to hold him in his arms and the gift being given to him of the Holy Spirit, that he would pick up that child and say, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. This was the, the burning desire of his parents that had been given to those men. What kind of training do you suppose that they received when they were being brought up? 
they were being brought up with a continual remembrance of the history of their people. Yeah, they watched as their parents set aside 10% of their income as their tithe to the Lord and another 10% for celebration that would take place in the Feast of Tabernacles as they rejoiced before God on that great and sacred day when they would celebrate the harvest. Those festivals three times required of every man of Israel, of every woman, to be able to go up to Jerusalem for Passover and for Pentecost and for the Feast of Tabernacle, to spend a whole week not on the beaches, a whole week celebrating before the Lord and worshiping in His temple, and it was the greatest and the most wonderful experience of their life. There were people that cried as they came over the tops of those mountains and looked upon Jerusalem for the first time. Pilgrims from all over the world coming because this meant everything to them, to remember God's deliverance of their people in Israel. This was Passover, Pentecost, celebrations, weddings, weddings. They were celebrating what in their weddings? They were celebrating creation, God giving man to woman and woman to man, becoming one flesh. And they would do it for seven long days, supplying all the food for all their guests for that period of time as they celebrated before God this wonderful institution of marriage held up so high. And that history of salvation that they were constantly recalling, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the prophets, and the stories of their infidelities as a people to God and their deportation to the land of Babylon and their restoration once again and their waiting. It was this preparation that made them also into linguistic scholars. We look at the epistle to the Hebrews and we discover that somebody had a knowledge of classical Greek that surpassed almost all forms of literature in that day and era. The Apostle Paul reveals that he was not only conversant in these languages of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, but he was also capable of being able to recite the scriptures by memory in both languages. And we wonder what is in the world is happening today as we cannot even hardly and it was so beautifully done by our youth, singing one stanza in German, which would be alien to almost every one of us. Their daily spiritual training was phenomenal. Prayer. Jesus goes up upon a mountain to pray, and he spends all night praying. And we wonder, what in the world was their prayer life like? And why was this preparation for the coming of the Messiah? They were constantly involved in theological discussions in their place within it. Jesus even had to rebuke them because he said to the disciples, as they were debating about who was greatest among them, he sets up a child and teaches them that the greatness of the kingdom of God is there. As we call that the peripatetic education where as he walked, he talked, he used examples, he used parables to help them understand more about the kingdom of God. They walked together and they sang hymns. It's a good thing the Beatles weren't active back in those days. 
they sang hymns and psalms and spiritual songs with joy within their hearts. And as they assembled and they worshiped together, as they entered into that temple and they saw before themselves all the rich metaphoric examples of what it is that their Messiah would do as they saw those lambs being sacrificed on their behalf, as they redeemed their own children by means of these sacrifices as they did with Jesus, as they bought back their children, the day was going to come when they know and knew from those things that they saw and experienced and tasted and smelled even that incense as it went like prayers before God that the day was going to come when God was going to send his own sacrifice, his own son, who was going to redeem not just them, but going to redeem all of creation once again. And all those hopes and all that training and all that faith and all those beliefs and all those years of preparation were dashed to the ground in one awesome, sad, despondent day. And so we begin to understand why their hearts burned within them as he explained to them what it is that had happened and why it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die and then be raised again on the third day. This faith behind the faith. Look among you. We're losing. We're losing the day because the secular world is having its way with us, folks. The secular world is the number one priority nowadays. And the secular world is encroaching on us like weeds encroaching upon a garden. The sex are the ones that are growing. Yes, just water it down, make it into a nice, warm, fuzzy Jesus, and I'm sure everything will be just fine. And that's exactly what we see in the big box. There's a breakdown of community. We're all living in our isolated little silos, and no longer do we even know one another within our own fellowship and congregation. The family structure is now under assault from every corner, especially when we see that this structure of man and wife is no longer in vogue. Young people are living together before they get married. It's a common and ordinary thing nowadays. We're supposed to accept it within our own children. And yet we find out that the family, which was the most sacred of all institutions, today is regarded as ancient, perhaps forfeiting itself to a greater community. Tradition, what we call tradition, even such things as simple as Lent and Advent, these kinds of things have simply gone by the wayside as our country and our people and even Christians today barely can make themselves to an Easter and a Christmas. We ask ourselves, what is the importance of this faith that receives faith. Well, ask yourself this. Does an athlete have to prepare for the contest? Does a scientist not have to study diligently in advance 
of advancing information and knowledge itself. We have been given a twofold job when it comes to this resurrection. Our job is first to receive it with repentance and to receive with hearts of faith the forgiveness of our sins. Repentance doesn't just mean some kind of a beating ourselves up. It means that our minds are changed, our minds are transformed, that there's a metamorphosis that takes place within the way in which we view the world and ourself and our hope. We have to stand outside of our immediate experiences. We have to be able to see it from God's perspective and to realize how serious and how important this eternal life is but then to reach out with all of our sins and our failings and our weaknesses and to grab onto this forgiveness of sins which God has given to us in Christ. To grab onto it with all our hearts and to believe it with all our hearts for ourselves. But then also to remember that this is something that our Lord did for everyone in the world. To exhort, to do all that we can to give all of ourselves to this one goal of bringing this repentance and this forgiveness of sins to the world in which we live, and to do it not with sadness or despondency or sense of obligation, but to do it with joy because it is the most wondrous, holy, sacred, and eternal gift that anybody could ever receive. And we, we have been called to do this. This work this sacrifice, the character that it takes in order to be able to do this, the Apostle Paul reminds us there in Romans chapter 5. He says to us, this suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because God pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Yeah, it is sometimes sacrificially difficult but it is something which builds in us both character and also a hope it ends up meaning that we must have if we ask ourselves what it is that we can do it's not just a job in the church not just a I helped with the ladies do this job I helped pass out donuts I helped with the board it's not the way to merely look at this. It is to say it is our job in order that we might inculcate, in order that we might teach the faith behind the faith so that faith can receive faith, so that we can see our generation and the generations to come receiving, holding fast, and believing what it is that we have so freely received from those who have gone before us. It means education. It means parenting. It means remembrance. It means learning even about this world so that we know the doggone world better than the world knows itself. It means that we also are engaged ourselves in spiritual exercise of prayer and devotion and worship and growing in this faith. And it means to be a community of faith, to care and have concern for one another, to carry each other's burdens, 
to care and love and know the children and the youth of our neighbors. It means that those who are caught in their sins, who are lost out there like lambs in the wilderness, that we go out and we find them and we care about them, we know them and we bring them back. It means that we join in those who are rejoicing, in those baptisms and in those confirmations and in those weddings and even in those funerals that we rejoice and we give thanks with them and with each other that we meet together in worship in the presence of Christ who still comes to us today in the breaking of bread. Still comes to us today in the breaking of bread. So walk. Let's walk with those two men on that road to Emmaus and taste the sweetness of what it is that they came to know, but also to reach back to the faith that received that message of faith, the faith that is behind the faith, and out of love for our children and our grandchildren and for the generations to come and for the world in which we live, to ask ourselves that question. God, what would you have me do to prepare hearts for this wonderful and beautiful message of the gospel, which is repentance and the forgiveness of our sins? Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding guard and keep your thoughts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.